0: Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Okay, so we've got, we've got some really awesome things coming up with evangelism and the Gospel Crusades. How many are looking forward to that? It's going to be amazing. Um, we have pretty much different missions team coming in every single week. And uh, it's really going to be incredible. We're going to be evangelizing. I'm going to share more in that starting next week. Um, we're going to we're going to talk a lot about different things and how you just make sure that you guys are all just uh, uh, connected into what exactly that's going to look like. But I, I bring that up because I really felt for a few reasons this morning. And this is just kind of an isolated message, but I feel it's it's an important message because in the midst of getting ready to do so many things, I, I really want to just speak into the foundations of our house, and really the foundations of, of our walk, which is that we are meant to live presence-centered. Yeah. Everything we do is from the presence of God. Now, I don't, I don't mean that... Uh, We're always living with a general awareness and connection to God at all times. That's the beauty. We're always connected. But I I do want to speak into, I think that there are these specific times we are meant to have day by day where we actually come away from the pulls of the world and connect with God. And when we learn to develop a healthy rhythm of that type of, call it what you want, secret place, devotional life, prayer closet, as you learn to live from that place, it will actually strengthen your general awareness So as we learn to have specific times of seeing and hearing and gazing upon God and living from the presence, it will strengthen your your day-to-day kind of just generally walking with God. So I really want to encourage you that we are called to, to live from this place, live from the presence of God. This is the key, guys, to a fruitful life. When you stop living from intimacy, here's what I found in my life. We are reduced to doing ministry from memory. That's a scary place to be. Why are you doing this? Because this is how I used to do it. This is how I've always done it. Rather than living from his voice, living from his day-to-day guidance. Daniel, Daniel, you know, Daniel, how many of you have heard of the Daniel fast? <laughs> right? It's this famous fast. It's a glorious thing. It's a, a lot of people think of the 21-day fast. But do you know that Daniel actually had multiple fasts? Multiple fasts within the book of Daniel. And why I bring that up is because when God called Daniel into a fast, he didn't just go back to what he did last time. Every single time, he responded to what God was saying for this moment right now. But when you stop living connected to God, what happens is the moment you're called into something, you just do it the way you did it last time. Sometimes what worked in one season isn't for this season. Because <laughs> God never wants us to be hooked to a method, but it's to his voice. We live by that, guys. So, so important that we live from the present. So I want to I wanna encourage you with that. Um, next week, as it was said, is our bridegroom fast. So I want to just encourage you today, again, as to why we gather regularly to fast, pray in the in the house of prayer. And honestly, I also want to just speak into our vision as a house of prayer, that every ministry flows from that place. Uh, the last time we spoke on that was in the beginning of the year, and it's just important we come back to that regularly, all right? So I pray, um, I pray you'd be encouraged in this. When I say prayer, I just want you to know, I, I feel like... I've been on a journey over the last few years of just expanding beyond just, like, me rattling off a bunch of requests. Like, that's what I used to think of prayer. When I say prayer and a house of prayer and living a life of prayer, as we're going to see in Mark's gospel, I really want you to think of, like, connection, communion, encountering God, living from uh, intimacy with God. That's the key. And I, I, I can tell you from a personal standpoint that a lot of times, I th- I, let me put it this way. I think most people know that prayer, living from this place, is really important. Even people who don't know the Lord will, will show that at times, they'll say, we need to pray, right, if something happens. What I found, though, is a lot of times, we know, the, we know that we should be doing it, but we really lack consistency in the place of connection with God. A lot of times, because I think we're just not really cap- walking with a deep enough revelation as to how significant it is. Maybe we have a verse here or there, but there's really not like a weighty revelation that has so gripped our hearts that when life starts to get crazy busy, This is the one thing that we don't let get touched, and and I know I need that, so the Lord's brought me into this, because this is a journey God reminds me of regularly. (laughs) As I'm starting to get busy, as I'm even like devouring the word, I just need to be careful that like, I'm not losing God. You know that's possible, like you start losing actually God in the process. Like be careful if our knowledge of God is leading us to be that much more critical, like bitter, angry. If that's the case, something's not right here. Something's off, so Yeah, I want to tether our hearts to the place of prayer, to the place of presence, all right? And let all that we do come from that. So why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 1, please. Mark chapter 1. Again, we're going to just take a few minutes this morning, speak from living from the presence, from the place of prayer. I trust the Lord will encourage you individually, and he's going to really speak into it corporately. I felt uh, this morning, and I, I know it applies to my life, I feel like God wants to do some divine resets. Um, so if you just need a reset, I pray you'd feel like fresh grace to come back to the simplicity of just being before God this way. Um, this, is, this is home base, guys, and it's what's true in an individual level, it's true in a corporate level. We want to build from the presence of God. So all that to say, here's what I want to do. I know I'll get you the specific verse in a second. But I want to take us through at least two verses in Mark, maybe, maybe three. We'll see how God leads. But I, I want you to see that from Mark, Mark has such a profound emphasis on the place of prayer. All the gospels, all the letters do, but Mark, it's really a dominant theme. And I want you to see how central it is, living from the place of connection with God. And Mark's really going to show us how Jesus models this for us. And then he's going to really tie it into beautifully into the house of prayer at the end. Now, before we jump into Mark 1 to see this, I need everyone just to lean in for a few minutes. I want to teach something, okay? Is that cool? (laughs) So I don't want to lose you because I want to teach this principle before we come into Mark 1, and then we'll see. we are definitely do Mark 1, Mark 11. Maybe we'll hit Mark 9. We'll see as time goes. But here's what I – in order to understand Mark 1, there's something very important. This will not only enrich our time together today – I think this will enrich your Bible study completely. You'll be looking for this, and I want to talk about an exciting topic of literary structure. (laughs) But it's really important, guys. Seriously. Okay, so now I have your attention. When we read and write in the West, okay, we're in the Western culture, we typically read and write in what's known as a linear form or linear fashion. What that means is we start in point A, and let's just say we want to get to point Z, okay? And along the journey... Everything is kind of building in a very chronological order, and everything is kind of uh, building also in value until you get to point Z, and point Z is the climax. For us, when we read and, we, and, and when we write, ultimately, we're typically building along the way, and when you get to the end, the end is what the whole point was. The end is the climax. The end is where you wanted to get to. Now, that's why, for, for at least in part, we enjoy books like the Book of Acts, not only, obviously, the stories are incredible, but it's really easy for us to read because it's actually written in a historical narrative. It's written in chronological order, and it's simply building, and we get that. The thing where we can run into an issue is that the Jews often did not write in linear form. They often wrote what is known as a chiastic form or chiastic structure. Now, what I want you to picture in a chiastic form is not a straight line. I want you to picture a mountaintop, okay? So what happens is as you're... As you're going through a chiastic form, it's building. When you get to the middle, the middle is like the peak of the mountain. That is the most important point. Everything hinges on that verse. It's the hinge verse. It's the climax. It's the whole point of the the passage or whatever you may be reading. So what happens is, is every point prior to that mountaintop is leading up to it. And then everything that happens after that point is a result of what took place on that mountain part. Does that make sense? So when you're reading through things, you can have chiastic forms in, over several verses. So, for example, how many of you here when we taught through the passages of Zacchaeus? A number of you here, right? And I know a lot of you said, wow, that felt like it was such a fresh way to engage. Well, the, the reason maybe why is because I taught it through its chiastic form. It's nine verses. It goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Five is the whole point of the story, not nine. So we'll read that through and say, oh, it's just about verse 9. No, for the Jew it was verse 5. What happened in verse 5? That's where Jesus stops and says, Zacchaeus, come down at that tree. I want to stay with you. And if you're here for that story, you remember that that was like the profound moment in that, in that account. So you can have chiastic form over verses. You can have it over several chapters, as we're going to see in Mark. You can actually have a chiastic form over several books. Check this out. This is really cool. This will actually deepen the importance of living present-centered, and it will show you how we can miss the point if we don't read according to how the Jews write. Do you know the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, do you know they're written in a chiastic form? It's fascinating. Now, why I say that's important is because when I read the first five books of the Bible prior to knowing that, The book ends in Deuteronomy with them ready to cross over into the promised land and then Joshua takes over. So how would I typically in the West understand what is the main point of the first five books of the Bible? Promised land. I'm thinking the whole story is about the promised land. Whatever it takes, just get to the promise. Now listen, promises are important. We live by promises. The promised land was significant. But if you think the whole thing was just get to the promised land, no matter what it takes, just get to that we will have missed what actually was most important to the Jewish people. So the way the first five books are written is chiastic, a mountain. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I want you also to know when you start to track this out, the sides of the mountain, if you will, they have deep parallels between them as well as you go up. It so enriches your study. But the first five books of the Bible, the most important, or I should say what the whole book hinges on is Leviticus. You're like, what? Leviticus? That's disappointing. <laughs> Just a bunch of laws. Now, here's why. Leviticus, guys, is very important. Leviticus is where God is putting out all of these laws. Holiness is the mark of the book. But not holiness as an end in itself. That's where it gets weird, holiness. Holiness so that you can have fellowship and union with God again. The entirety of the first five books is God restoring what was lost in the garden now, this is Old Covenant, but he's laying out these laws that are required in order for man to once again be able to encounter him. It's all about presence, all about presence. You want to take this even deeper? The middle book, Leviticus, well, the middle of Leviticus is chapter 16. You know what that, uh, that, that chapter is about? Atonement. The central part of the first five books is atonement, that God would pr- provide a sacrifice that would allow man and God to be at one with one another. It's all about presence. So listen, when Moses was given the prospect of going to the promised land in Exodus 33, do you remember what happened? There was sin that reached the, uh, the people, the Israel at the base of the mountain. Sin had touched them, and God told Moses, listen, you can go forward with the people to the promised land, but I won't go with you. I'll send an angel before. Now, in the West, we'd say, thank you. I got the promised land. Let's go. <laughs> but if we, if, we don't misunderstand, if we don't understand this, we can read it that way, saying, oh, I just got to get to this goal. But what did Moses say? He didn't say thank you. He said, "Uh uh-uh. If your presence doesn't go with us, we will not go into the promised land. Because for them, it was all about the presence of God, not just about getting this promise. Guys, what good is a career, the American dream, platform, microphone, boyfriend, girlfriend? What good is any of that if the presence of God is not in it? It's all about his presence. And so the whole beginning of the Bible is God saying, okay, you sinned and we're cut off. Now I'm going to restore it back to my people. Now, if we don't know that's how it's written, again, we can totally misunderstand it. So does that kind of help you understand how this is? All right. So now we're going to see, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. If you haven't, I'll give you another second. Mark chapter 1. And you can be kind of mid, I'll give you the text. I don't want you to cheat yet. That's why. We got to build a little suspense here No. Just be in Mark 1. Okay, so here's how, here's how Mark starts. So we're going to see the first few chapters, are chiastic form, and specifically you're going to see how incredible like prayer is to Mark. So Mark begins by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, a few weeks ago I shared that this, this word gospel is actually a word deeply rooted in the Roman culture. It means good news, and they applied it to when emperors took, took their place particularly Caesar. So they called it the gospel of Caesar, the good news of Caesar. It's about a new king, a new day, a new reign is here. So Mark's saying it's the beginning of the new reign, the new king. Well, he's always been king, but like it's broken in now. You feel it, God's here. Yeah. The rule of God is at hand. And as soon as this happens, one of the things Mark wants us to see right from the beginning is that this king is powerful. Because what he does is, unlike some of the others, he uses a specific word when John says, I baptize with water, but there's one more powerful than I that's coming now John was considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets and Jesus is greater than him and right off the bat you want John uh, Mark wants us to see there's a new king that's come a new day has broken in and he is powerful he's more powerful than John he'll show he's more powerful than demons he's more powerful than sickness he's more powerful than leprosy he's more powerful than lost in the religious spirit every along the way Mark's like boom boom one story after another there's this powerful king declaring the reign of God is here All the works of the enemy are being undone. Hallelujah. So now I want you to see, though, how this is written. Okay, can you guys see this up here? All right, my wife, she helped me with the graphics, all right? So here, I just, I want to show you these accounts, and then I'll kind of talk through them. But notice on the bottom left, chapter 1, 16 to 20, the call of the disciples, right? Look on the other side, bottom right, you have the call of Levi, okay? Okay? Same idea, same principle. Work up the mountain. Verse 21, 28, Jesus will go in the synagogue. Again, I'll go through these in a minute. He has the conflict with the demonic. You remember there's a man who begins to manifest as he comes into the synagogue. Flip over to chapter 2, verses 1 and 12. This is the conflict with the scribes, where the men lower their friend through the roof, and the scribes, they, uh, Jesus forgives them of his sins and heals him, and the scribes are say this is blasphemy. So here you see a parallel of two conflicts, one demonic, one with scribes. Work your way up, you have the healing story of Simon Peter, mother-in-law, which then leads to the whole town gathering. And then on the other side, you have a healing story of a leper, okay? Perfect parallels, which means what comes at the top for Mark, that's the key verse. That's the hinge. Now, let's just talk through these stories for a moment, and then when you see what's at the hinge, I think it'll be like, <laughs> mind-blowing what Mark shows. So first thing is, I just want you to see Jesus' life and what Mark's showing us, why these things were, I think, resting on his life. Number one is he calls his disciples in that bottom left. Let's work up the mountain. Call of disciples. One of the things that sticks out to me is the wisdom of God that's resting on on God in the flesh, Jesus. Now, Jesus is going to model for something as a man, but he could have called anyone. But there's there's Isaiah 11. The spirit of wisdom is going to rest on him. Like, there's something Mark wants us to see in the calling of the disciples that he could have chosen anyone. If I had three and a half years or so on the earth... I would probably be going in very natural reasons to like the political, like politically powerful, the affluent. Jesus, his heart is for them. But with how critical his mission mission is and how short his time, he's coming after like ordinary, like broken, outcast. This is who he's saying, I'm calling to myself, right? There is a wisdom that is confounding like the worldly wisdom. Say, I would never imagine God would select these men. Then as you work your way up, the next story is that he goes and has a conflict with the demonic. So this is where Jesus goes into the synagogue. He declares the kingdom of God is at hand. He goes right and calls his disciples, and he goes into a synagogue, and there is a man who, has, who when Jesus' presence shows up, the man begins to manifest. This is amazing, guys. This, I've, I've, I'm going to lean towards that this man was probably in the gatherings quite regularly, and nothing of this sort was ever seen before. But when the presence of the Holy One showed up, everything that was lying underneath the surface and dormant began to come to the surface. Why? God actually showed up to church. (laughs) Imagine that. God came into the gathering. (laughs) And when God comes in, all of this stuff starts showing up, right? So Jesus comes in, Jesus will set this man free. He'll, he'll, he'll set him free. And here's what I love is that the, those that see this are amazed and they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Now, they say this a lot about Jesus. He had, what was this, a new teaching? If you notice, though, it's always connected to because he spoke with authority. Meaning, that it's not because he actually taught something different they never heard before. It's that actually what he taught was then really seen and demonstrated. They said, what is this? This is different. The Pharisees had a great knowledge of the scripture, but they did not have authority like this. That's what what, this is a new teaching. This man has authority. So I want you to see right off the bat, Mark says there's a wisdom resting on his life. There's authority resting on his life that even the demonic, even the demonic bow down him. So much authority. They say, what is this, a new teaching? Then he goes up and has the healing story where he then goes to Simon, Peter, Simon Peter's mother-in-law and he heals her. Now, not only does he have power now over diseases, it says then the whole city gathered at the, the doorstep of the house. And he drove out all demonic diseases and, and, uh, and demons. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I just picture this. Thing. This is powerful, guys. So you've got, calls these men, he has wisdom, he has authority, he has power over the sick, he has power over demons, and then you come down the backside of the mountain, you have the healing story of the leper. This is important, guys. Leprosy is often isolated from healing, from like healing of diseases, but yet it's a disease in itself. You ever notice that? For example, when Jesus commissions the uh, 12 in Matthew 10, he says, go preach the kingdom. It says, heal the sick, raise the dead. And then, and then it cast out demons and heal the lepers, cleanse the lepers. Why isn't cleanse the lepers with healing the sick? I, I think it's because this was such a like, traumatic thing that happened to someone. It not only destroyed you physically, but destroyed you socially. You were excommunicated. Like Leprosy was seen as something that was untouchable. I mean, outside of a miracle, that was it. You were cut off in so many ways. Mark is saying this king not only has power over demons, power over sickness, he has power over leprosy as well. Even lepers, as he touches them, he's not becoming unclean. They're becoming clean as Jesus touches them. Then he comes down with the conflict of the, with the scribes. He, there's, there's discernment resting on his life. He can discern like the deep thoughts of these men's hearts. He's able to see what's really going on, their corrupt motives. He's going to heal. He's going to forgive. He's going to set free. And then finally, in the, in the bottom, is the call of Levi, where he's going to call a tax collector to follow him. The compassion of God to reach out to one that was completely cut off and, and said to be beyond hope, God's going to include him. Now, why am I sharing this? Because when you take this full story and you see all these scriptures, Mark is showing us a profound like picture that he's painting. He's saying Jesus is coming in power. There's wisdom on his life. There's a discernment on his life. There's compassion for the lost on his life. There's power over demons. There's power over sickness. There's power over leprosy. There's power over the religious spirit. There's such an authority on his life that when he teaches, they say, what is this? A new teaching. We've never seen this before. And all of this is being painted, but because it's written in the form that I've said, there's a key section within this that Mark wants us to see is like, this is the secret to everything you're seeing take place in Jesus's life. You want to know why there's wisdom, authority, power, compassion, all of these things resting. Mark says, This is the key. This is how he lived. And he sets an example for us to be able to partake in this. Let's read verse 35 of Mark 1. Here's the hinge verse for us of the chiastic form. Verse 35. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. There he prayed. (laughs) Guys, Mark wants you to see everything that you see circling around the life of Jesus. Mark says, here's where it all flows out of. When I was still early, Jesus woke up and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed with the Father. Jesus is, as a man, Jesus is modeling for us how to have a vibrant and victorious Christian life. There's no bypassing this, nor do we want to. This, like, this is the key, guys. It's, it's so simple, it's offensive, that I always am trying to move past this into other things. But this, this is the life that is, like, abounding with fruit. This is the life that is going to avoid burnout. This is the life that's going to walk in authority, it's the life that's living in consistent connection with the Father. Again, I understand we are to meant, meant to live like this in a general sense at all times. It's amazing, always speaking with the Father. Like, whatever you're doing, is it's a holy moment. But there is something that I think we need in a very deliberate way of coming away with God this way. And when we begin to learn to build a life like this, I think more and more we'll see these things happening around us. Jesus' key right here is he rose early, And he prayed. I want you to imagine on a now in a corporate sense. When we gather in the prayer room, I want you to imagine it's like us rising early, or even if it's the afternoon set, and we're coming to the desolate place to pray. We're coming away, and I'm telling you guys, it may feel like it's a waste of time. I'm gonna show you. Peter exclaimed, Peter basically rebukes him for saying, What are you doing here? Everyone's looking for you. You should be out doing other things. But Jesus saying, I'm teaching you something, Peter. I'm showing something. I won't be with you for much longer. I'm going to pass the baton on to you guys next, and you're going to be extension of my kingdom, and I want you to see how you live a life of victory. I want to show you like how you actually bring the kingdom. It's maintaining connection with the Father. Guys, the Pharisees knew the scripture. They knew it. That's a glorious thing, but they weren't seeing this breakthrough. In fact, they often closed the door to the masses rather than opening the door to the kingdom of God because of their spiritual pride and ambition. This is the way. Was that the Mandalorian? <laughs> Jesus' authority, guys, it rests with constant connection with the Father. Let's just listen to this verse Hebrews 5 7, speaking of Jesus, says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. This is saying Jesus' life as a man was marked by fervent prayers and cries continuously, which means he won his breakthrough like any other man would in the place of intercession. Like when you see entire cities gathering, he didn't just show up. He could have. He could have just drawn right there from the deep. But instead, he's really living by the spirit connected to the Father. And he's saying, when I showed up to places, it wasn't because I just showed up and expected to be victory. I was winning victories in the secret place. I was rising early with the Father. I was securing open heavens that you see when I would come and engage with God. That's where the place was being won, guys. And then he would go out and there'd be breakthrough. This is where the authority is. It's knowing, because there's so much that happens in this place of communion with the Father. Amen. The hours Jesus spent in the wilderness, the hours Jesus spent rising early, guys, this was this was the key to the breakthrough that you saw in the public place, was the life that he was cultivating behind the scenes. Paul's the same way. It's not. Jesus. Paul learned this as well. If you look at Paul's letters, I mean, he birthed churches that literally didn't just barely get by. That would have been a miracle. I mean, they were birthed with no resources. The, the, the pagan idolatry-like culture dominated the day, and Paul's... Churches didn't just barely make it, they thrived. They overturned these cities. Why? What was the key? Paul, in all of his epistles, is talking about how he's bathing these ministries and these churches in the place of prayer. I'm constantly praying, praying without ceasing, praying always. Like, Paul had many... Powerful things working for him in his ministry. His conversion was a powerful tool that he shared. But I believe, like, the most effective thing that the letters show us is Paul always, always was before the Father lifting up these churches. Opening doors and closing doors. Hallelujah. Look, if you keep reading, verse 36. It says, And Simon and those who are with him, this is Peter, search for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. That's what I shared before. It actually says in certain translations, they exclaimed, which means to cry with a kind of a loud voice out of surprise or even like anger. In other words, they are completely shocked that Jesus is here right now. They're surprised. It's almost like a borderline rebuke that's happening here. It's like, what are you doing here? Everyone is looking for you. Why are you in this place right now? Now, Peter doesn't get it. These guys don't get it yet. But Jesus is teaching them a a divine alignment. There's like this divine order to how we move. It's not law. It's an order. It's that in and out that we talk about. Coming in before God regularly, then going out now, carrying his heart, blueprints of heaven, carrying authority, carrying wisdom, is resting on our life, carrying like his desires, and then we go out and minister from that place. Peter can't understand it. But you know what? They will. Because one day they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to say, Lord, teach us to pray. I want you to think about this. These guys had a front row seat to Jesus' life and ministry for about three and a half years, however long it was, three years. They saw everything. They saw miracles. They saw his teaching. They saw his heart. They saw healings, deliverance. You name it, they saw it. You know what's amazing? I'm sure Jesus in many ways, I mean, we see that he definitely is growing them practically how to walk in those things, but never once does the scripture say that they ask specifically to learn how to do those things. The one thing they ask is, Lord, teach us to pray. Not because they're devaluing those things, but actually they recognize if we get our prayer lives in order, all of these other things will start happening. It's like the one thing that Jesus' life provoked in his disciples was his connection with the Father. And they said, after watching your life for three years, Jesus, here's the one thing I want to ask you. What happens when you rise early? What happens when you close your eyes and you begin to engage with Father? Can you teach us that? Because after observing your life for these many years, we've come to find that if we can figure out what's going on there, and if we can have that type of connection with the Father that you have, then we're going to see all the other things that you're calling us into. The place of prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. <laughs> you know, oftentimes you just, you just take prayer for granted. Like everyone knows how to pray. No, we need lo- we need we need God to teach us <laughs> how to connect, right? And we spend a lot of time in this place talking about how to grow in the place of prayer. Oftentimes, um, I just, just close my eyes and just start rattling off all my burdens. <laughs> and God's so good that He He's gracious. He responds to all this, but. Man, this is, this is bigger than that. This is about really learning how to, how to move with the rhythms of grace each day as you rise early. Sometimes it can look like deep, just like devouring this. Sometimes the Lord says, first, I just want to sit in silence before me. Sometimes there's worship taking place, and all of a sudden now God begins to breathe and say, come here. But it's, it's moving with God. This is the life exchange. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm literally preaching all to myself right now, <laughs> just being reminded of these. But I say this often. I don't want you to miss this, that if you're not careful, you can do a lot of good Christian things and not have life. It's not that we're not supposed to do them, but Jesus himself is the life. And if not careful, you'll start doing a lot of Christian things, but your heart will be as empty as ever before. Your schedule will be busier than ever before, but your heart will still be empty because Jesus says, I am the life. This is the way to live from the secret place, connecting with God. May it be said of us that our lives individually, our lives as a community, I, I pray that this is what it provokes in others. And to a certain extent, and I'm not this isn't a boast, but I think this is a beautiful thing. Some have said, man, what happens when you guys gather before the presence of the Lord? What happens in the prayer room? Like, I want to provoke people to 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 learn to grow in that place. That happens, everything else is going to, going to shift. Man. Um, yeah, I'm gonna skip uh Come to Mark 11, we'll finish here. Isn't that so beautiful when you see how Mark writes that? all of these surrounding stories? And it was the rising early to pray. That's the hinge of all of the activity you see around the life of Christ. Let's come to Mark 11. And we'll finish out here. Now, I will say this. I skipped Mark 9. I, but if you track this theme of prayer in, uh, in Mark, Mark 9 is where Jesus, I just want you to hear this. I won't, we won't go into it. Mark 9 is where Jesus and the disciples or the inner circle come down at the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you remember, there's a boy that's demonically possessed that they've been praying for and there's no breakthrough. And uh, Jesus comes and basically says, what's happening here? And he says something that like cuts me to the core or the, the father does. He says, your disciples were praying for my son who's bound, but they couldn't cast it out. And I don't know, that just always hits me because I've, I've experienced the joys of seeing breakthrough, but I've also experienced like the grief and just honestly the heartache of praying and not seeing breakthrough. And it's easy in moments like that. I think, look, there's a lot of factors that can go into this and not seeing, and I don't want anyone to take on un- unnecessary burden. But honestly, Jesus, I think gives a very important uh, point here is that oftentimes we can walk away from that scene saying it just wasn't God's timing or will. But you know that Jesus will then take the boy and heal him, deliver him which means it was God's will. There was an opportunity for those disciples to pray and see deliverance, and it wasn't because it wasn't God's will, but he says there was deep unbelief embedded in your heart. And so he'll go on to teach them, if we don't allow ourselves to get offended, <laughs> guilty, or to come up with reasons, if we don't allow that, and let Jesus to speak to us the way he spoke to his disciples, and he probably wants to speak to us, which is, hey, if you would just let me show you some things in your heart, you may begin to see some things different. And he said, These, this kind comes out only by Prayer, or prayer and fasting. He's teaching them, hey, you you showed up someplace. See, maybe we should have went there. (laughs) But but look, they saw Jesus and watched him, which means the issue was not that they didn't have right movement. They knew what to say. They knew what to do. No breakthrough. This is the issue. Is it possible for us to be engaging in something where we're doing the right thing, but our hearts are in unbelief? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Now, Jesus says the answer, the antidote to that unbelief is prayer. Not because we can make ourselves have faith. in pr- Like, that's you can't work in the faith. Faith's a gift. But faith comes by hearing. And Hebrews 12, 2 says faith comes by seeing. What happens in the place of prayer and connection is that as you posture your heart, your ears, your body before God, you start hearing and seeing God. Faith is deposited into you. By grace, faith starts hitting you. Like, I've come into our prayer room Heart's like maybe in a, in a bad place. And at the end, even if it doesn't feel like anything powerful has happened, I've just been before the Lord. His word's been shared. His truth has been sung. And I just sense like, ah, faith, like drinking a cup of cold water. So I want to encourage you, like being before God in the place of prayer gets out those deadly toxins of unbelief that we can't even see sometimes. All right, now we're in Mark 11. So Mark's been building this theme of prayer. Now I want you to see before I read this, we'll finish here. But look at verse 12 of Mark 11. There's there's a subtitle here. Mine says, Jesus curses the fig tree. You guys have something like that, hopefully. All right. Or I don't know what Bible you're in. Now look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Skip a few verses. It says, the lesson from the withered fig tree. You guys see that? So this is the next day. Jesus is going to give lessons. Why am I sharing that? Again, what you have here is this mini chiastic form. You have these two bookends of fig tree. What's right in the middle is very important. It's Jesus cleansing the temple. And what he's going to show us is that everything he's talking about with the fig tree actually becomes representative of the spiritual state of the temple that he's about to cleanse. And what's he going to say? He's going to connect a fruitless temple because they're not a house of prayer. They're not connecting with the Father. (laughs) So as we're reading this, I want you just to see how Mark is building this. So read verse uh, 12 with me. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, so this fig tree is blossoming in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Again, there's an emphasis on leaves. For it was not the season for figs. That makes this story really bizarre. (laughs) And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Okay. I, before I just share something I think is happening, the big picture, regardless of how you get there, is that there is, Jesus wanted fruit and there wasn't fruit, and that's going to come connected to the temple. But that would be really straightforward outside of the fact that there's a strange comment saying, he curses this tree for not having figs, meanwhile it wasn't the season four figs. Why would he curse something it wasn't the season four? And I do think there's some, some Depth, it adds to that really simple big point that we're, that we're getting at. And if, if, if it goes over your head, don't worry. It's, it's a fruitless tree is what we're looking at. But here's what I think is happening. I've looked at a few different things, and this is the one I've really landed on. Jesus is coming in at the Passover, and Passover is April. Now, figs don't actually get ripe until June. So you're about two months prior to fig season. So Mark is not lying when he says it's not fig season. Still, why then would Jesus curse it? Well, if you notice, there's something interesting about this tree. Twice, there's comments about its leaves. In fact, its leaves are so blossoming that from a distance, it says Jesus could see the leaves. And then when he gets up close and he inspects it, he finds nothing but leaves, it says. There's something about this tree that Mark wants us to see. Its leaves are full developed and blossoming. Why that's interesting is because the blossoming of your leaves will be in direct proportion to how ripe your fruit is. So if you have really full, well-developed leaves, the expectation is you should have fruit, but this isn't the season for fruit. Here's the thing. The tree is making a promise it can't fulfill. The tree, it's like it has a well-developed show of leaves saying, look at all of our leaves. A tree like that, you would expect, should have fruit then. But as Jesus gets closer and begins to look at it, he says, there's nothing here to eat. There's only a display. There's only a show here. Guys, this is so, so important because Jesus is actually giving us a prophetic picture of the temple. And what he's saying is they have this great ceremony and great pomp. And there's all this activity and there's money changers and all of these things. And it's very businesslike. It has a great show of leaves. But Jesus says, as I look closer, I see no fruit. There's no fruit here. Oh, there's so much taking place. Everyone's calculating. Look how many people, look how many services, look how many this, look how many that, look how many that. But Jesus, it looks so good. It's calling out and declaring to everyone, look, come and eat from here. But Jesus says, there's no substance here. Why? Because as we're going to see, Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. Again, it's a house centered on the presence. Guys, without his presence as central, no matter what we do, it's just a show of leaves. We need God as central in our lives. And we need a community that's building around the presence of God in this way. Amen? Amen? So the fruitless tree becomes a picture of the barren temple. Now, I don't want to over-allegorize this text. I don't like doing that. But I take, it if, take it how you want. But verse 12, let me read it again. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, I believe there's a natural hunger here. But I just wonder, <laughs> as Jesus went, in John 4, to the, to the well with the Samaritan woman, and it says, Jesus thirsted. He was thirsty. And if you remember, water and that connected to the worship. There was something he was looking for from that Samaritan woman. I just wonder, as Jesus is preparing to come into his house, there's a hunger that God has. God has a, an appetite that he's looking to be satisfied in his people. He has, he has no need, but there's a desire that God has. And he's saying, what's happening in my house doesn't meet my desire. I have a hunger and it's not being met. Gathering around giftings, gathering around people, gathering around mission statements, but who will gather around the presence? Which is something, again, in the house of prayer, this is why we're so diligent of morning and night coming before God. We want to gather around Him. So look what happens as Jesus enters in. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything from the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? And he quotes Isaiah 56, my house shall be, a house, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So here's the picture. As he comes in, he sees all of this stuff going on, but he says it's it's barren like the fruitless tree. He finds professionalism rather than the anointing of God flowing in here, right? Like carnal endeavors rather than first love devotion. All of these things happening. And he's bringing him back to a place of prayer, a place of connection, the resting place, the dwelling place. We'll close here in verse 20. Jesus actually gives us some really good instructions of how to grow as a house of prayer. Verse 20, as they pass in the morning, it's the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. <laughs> it's cursed now and has withered away. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Some believe the tree actually represents how the old temple has withered away now, that now it's the people of God. So now Jesus is saying, this tree is gonna wither this old temple and now you will be my house of prayer as a people. He's addressing, not individuals, guys, he's addressing a community now. And then verse 24, he, he says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received and it will be yours. Man, guys, I know that verses like this, I I understand that there's been some camps maybe that have taken this to, to an unhealthy place, but there's a real principle here of like having faith when you pray. That when you pray and you really believe, the Lord's teaching us how to be an effective house of prayer. He's saying have faith in God, trust in the faithfulness of God, Like, Peter's being, Peter is in awe at the power of God's word moving through a human vessel. He says, the fig tree that you spoke to is now cursed. And Jesus is saying, yeah, when you speak with faith, this is what happens. There's like authority in our words. And then verse 25, he says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you for your trespasses. So look, what Jesus is addressing is not a bunch of us being just individual houses of prayer, as true as that is. The fact that he's speaking about forgiveness, he's addressing a community right here, guys. He's teaching us how we are now like the house of God, and we are meant to be a house of the presence. And he says there's two things you want to grow. Faithfulness, grow in understanding how faithful God is. So faith for us, because God is faithful is what he's saying, and forgiveness. He's actually teaching us. He's teaching a community. He says, guys, you want to be effective in the place of prayer? Make sure that you're living with love and transparency and honesty and, like, forgiveness between one another. If there is if there's things coming against you guys, it's going to really affect. 1 Peter 3, 7 speaks in marriage. It says if there's something off in marriage, it says God won't hear your prayers. Do, do you know that? <laughs> it says that. And it's really aimed at the, at the husbands, that God won't hear the prayers. So Jesus is teaching us. We want to grow as a place in effectiveness of seeing breakthrough. We need to to have faith in the faithfulness of God and we need to have forgiveness. We need to have real bonds in in, in community here because we don't want to just keep praying things and nothing happen. Ian Bound says unanswered prayers become the training ground for unbelief. Like we need answers to prayer so that we don't start praying and actually it's fueling unbelief every time we pray saying nothing's going to happen. Amen? Amen. So over these next few weeks um, as we're going out and evangelizing come in July and we'll share more I just wanted to keep this central, that as we're going out and praying for the lost and praying for the sick and whatever it may be, that we remember who we are as a house, that we want to continually gather and go out from this place. I want to encourage you and just pray over you before you leave that grace just would be released to you, to rise, to be with the Father, to spend time with Him, to live from that. You were made for it. The veil has been rent. You can come in. (laughs) A. W. Tozer says that the world, the world is longing and looking for one who has uh, pierced in behind the veil, has seen things, heard things, and comes out. And you can hear it in his voice and see it in their eyes. They've been with, they've been with Abba. And as we do this, guys, we're going to see a profound breakthrough. Um, next week is Bridegroom. We're fast. so happy you could know. join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go you can visit us online at myhomechurch.org subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on social media if you would like to give to this ministry text the amount to 84321 bless you